Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Yesterday, Russia's Coast Guard attacked and seized three Ukrainian Navy boats and 23 crew members. The Ukrainian Navy was attempting to go through the straits where Russian-occupied Crimea is closest to Russia, known as the Kursh Straits, and Russia just built a bridge over these straits that connects Russia to Crimea. The United Nations Security Council held an emergency meeting on the situation. We heard that the U.S. has called it an outrageous violation of sovereignty on the BBC News. With me is Daria Kalinuk. She is the executive director of the Anti-Corruption Action Center in Ukraine. Thanks very much for joining us, Daria. Sure, my pleasure. I wonder, you know, this is the kind of incident that provokes wider incidents, that provokes wars. Uh, How are people in Ukraine taking this incident? Well, we actually live in the uh, situation of war since 2014, when Russian aggression started first from occupation of Crimea and then triggering violent actions on the eastern of east of Ukraine. And since that time, every literally every day there were some soldiers dying on the front line. It was not called war. Uh, and uh, what changed yesterday is that willingness of Ukrainian authorities to adopt the martial law. Uh, which kind of tells officially that it is Russian aggression and that Ukrainian authorities will have right to limit some citizens' human human rights and constitutional rights in order to defend our sovereignty from Russian aggression. Now, that is a, a little bit of an unusual response, isn't it, to, to declare martial law for a naval incident that... Um you know, a lot of the country doesn't live near. It's it's a it's 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 rather strange, right? Exactly. This is uh, what frustrates uh, us the most, uh, especially considering that it happens four months before the presidential elections. And uh, I wish I could trust Ukrainian president, but he uh, was not very sincere in his anti-corruption reforms during the last three and four years. And uh, he didn't manage to reform properly security service of Ukraine and other uh, law enforcement agencies, which will have rights to limit constitutional rights of the citizens of Ukraine. And so um, it it looks a bit that uh, it could be uh, the martial law initiative could be taken to distract attention of the citizens to the war. And, uh, and to distract attention of the citizens to how slow reforms are happening and to have some sort of impact on the upcoming elections. Now, in, in, was th- in most yeah, martial yeah. law situations, uh, people cannot congregate outside. And if it's the middle of a presidential campaign, you want to hold rallies and things like that. But this wouldn't happen for 30 days during martial law? Uh, yeah, the the draft law on martial law uh, precludes that there might be limitations on their protests. Uh, You can't run elections during these 30 days. Uh, There might be some um, uh, uh, results on the freedom of expression and so on and so forth. Uh, So it's not clear how exactly all these prohibitions of constitutional right will help to defend ourselves. 
but uh, at least what president uh, promised is that it will not be for 60 uh, days as was initially planned yesterday that the martial law will last for 30 days and that it will not impact the time frame for elections and that presidential elections will happen anyway in March. I'm talking with Daria Kalinuk. She's executive director of the Anti-Corruption Action Center in Ukraine. And we're talking about what happened with Russia. They seized three Ukrainian naval vessels in the Black Sea. And coming up after the break, I'm going to talk with uh, film contributor Milos Stalik about the passing of two film greats, Bernardo Bertolucci and Nicholas Rogue. Um, I wonder if you would comment on Petro Poroshenko and his past um, relationship with martial law as president. Back in 2014, he did not want to have martial law in the country because the IMF doesn't fund things if you're under martial law. And now he does want to have martial law. Um, What changed there? Uh, this is also an open question. Um, and uh, first of all, it looks like that IMF uh, does not necessarily, does not have relationships during martial law. So there must be some sort of waiver or exemption for uh, situations like the one in Ukraine. And uh, another reason is that back in 2014, uh, there was a need to run elections, both presidential and parliamentarian. Um, as Yanukovych, the Ust-Ostet president of Ukraine with links to Russia, ran away after the revolution of the citizens of Ukraine. He ran to Russia. And there was uh, a need actually to change the political elites. It was also the requirement of uh, foreign partners of Ukraine to have the democratic change of power. Uh, It looks like that was the key reason why there was no martial law when um, Crimea was occupied. Uh, however, since then, in 2015 and 16, uh, there was huge. There were huge escalations uh, on the east of Ukraine, aggression from Russia, and there was no reason for martial law. Um, and uh, therefore, it's getting more and more questions: Why exactly now the martial law has to be adopted? And by the way, it's not adopted yet. Right now, in the Parliament of Ukraine. Parliamentarians are discussing whether to support the proposal from the uh, Security Council of Ukraine and the president or not. And uh, we still don't know whether we will have martial law adopted today. And if we will have, what will it mean for how long it will last and what kind of uh, limitations of the citizens' rights it will have. Right now, the president isn't super popular in Ukraine in, in the presidential polls. He's, he's pretty far down the list. Uh, does he have the popularity to push this through parliament right now? Uh, it's true. He's not very popular. His uh, rates are uh, decreasing, uh, but he still has the largest political faction in the parliament. And uh, the second largest political faction uh, also um, have ministries uh, in government. Uh, therefore, there are good chances for him to get parliament approve the martial law. Uh, but still, uh, they are negotiation, negotiating what will be the conditions. I think that one of the um, compromises... Uh, could be to have the martial law only on the part of the territories of Ukraine, those which are closer to the actual 
um, aggression of Russia. And um, those were really, there is a need to mobilize all our resources. But for some reason, the president wants to have the martial law for entire territory of Ukraine. And Ukraine is quite a big country, the biggest in Europe. So it's, it's, a, it's an open, open question why we need limitations of citizens' rights uh, on the old territory of Ukraine and how actually it will help to defend ourselves. How do you think Ukraine's allies should react? Today at the Security Council, the U.S. called the incident with Russia an outrageous violation of sovereignty by Russia. Russia was isolated in the Security Council about it. It seems like they're going to support Petro Poroshenko and Ukraine pretty much to the hilt. Uh, is is that good, you know, for Petro Poroshenko? Is that good for Ukraine? Is that a necessary thing? It is a necessary thing to Ukraine as Russia clearly violates international law and starts open aggression and escalates it again and again. And they actually are very thankful for the strong and straightforward position of the United States. We wish such a position was also in the EU. Uh, however, their public statements are softer. What we think could be done more from our foreign partners is actually working more closely together between USA and the EU on increasing sanctions against Russia, against inner circle of Putin, and against affiliated entities across Europe and uh, those which are using American dollar in their correspondent banking relationships. This is something that uh, uh, Putin really cares and what the United States could do more. Um, I'm also thankful for I'm thankful to the United States for imposing personal sanctions on the uh, Viktor Medvedchuk, it's the close ally of Putin, who actually works in Ukraine, uh, and he openly supports uh, Federation of Ukraine, he supports Russia, he has businesses in Russia, uh, he actually has ships which are trading oil on the Azov Sea, this is the place where uh, escalation is happening right now, but he's meeting with President Poroshenko at his home. There was a recent um, uh, investigation of uh, investigative journalists on that. So for some reason, in Ukraine, this person is not sanctioned. Uh, isn't and he running for president right questions, now? Open question. He's a why. presidential candidate. Uh, he actually uh, he's not a presidential candidate yet, but he is joining uh, one of them. Uh, opposition parties with close links to Russia. So he has good chances to get into the next parliament. And for some reason, this person who's under the U.S. sanctions uh, is uh, filling himself very freely uh, in Ukraine. I think that the martial law could also be used by the president and authorities to close down this uh, um, ally of Putin who freely operates in Ukraine. Let's see whether it will be done or not. Um, that sounds really unusual that someone who is such a close ally of Putin can operate in Ukraine. Why? How does that? Does the president have to justify that to, to people? Does it do? Does does do people who are opposed to him bring it up? Um, well, he justifies that, explaining that uh, um, Medvedchuk is being used to negotiate 
uh, deals with with Russian backed um, separatists on freeing Ukrainian um, uh, political prisoners and war prisoners. Uh, and it, but it's not clear actually whether the Medvedchuk really plays an important role there. And it's not um, yeah, understandable for me, at least, uh, why Medvedchuk can openly own the oil extracting licenses in Russia and trade this oil extracted in Russia with occupied territories of Ukraine. And, you know, it's unexplainable to me. Uh, one of the reasons could be is that it's important for Petro Poroshenko to have obvious evil. And Medvedchuk is uh, um, accepted, is per- perceived in Ukraine as evil, as the close ally of, 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 of Putin. And uh, if Poroshenko has such a um, black and white world, then he himself, Poroshenko, will look more like a good guy, not anti-reformer, but actually as the person who fights against Putin and against uh, Medvedchuk. Um, that might be the reason. I'm talking with Daria Kalinuk, and she's executive director of the Anti-Corruption Action Center in Ukraine. We're talking about the outcome of the incident where Russia seized three Ukrainian naval vessels in the Black Sea. Uh, Ukraine is thinking about declaring martial law over the incident. Coming up after the break, I'll talk with film contributor Milos Stelik about the passing of film greats Bernardo Bertolucci and Nicholas Rogue. Um, The thing I wanted to get to is, do you think the United States can come out and condemn what's happened with Russia here and yet still be critical of of what's going on inside Ukraine with martial law and say, well, this doesn't exactly seem like the thing that we should be doing here? Well, I think that uh, United States could be critical to Russian and could be critical to Ukrainian authorities about not doing reforms which help to um, uh, to strengthen Ukrainian law enforcement and judiciary. Um, for us, the strategy to win the war with Russia should lie in the reforms of Ukrainian system where we will close corruption loopholes in all um, uh, sectors of the country. Uh, however, this was not on the top agenda of the president of Ukraine. And I think that the martial law and its implementation uh, will show whether the limitations of citizens' rights will be used actually to strengthen the defense strategies of Ukraine, or it will be abused in order to um, intimidate people who criticize authorities and who uh, are trying to expose corruption. What I'm afraid is that actually all those who will expose corruption and documented facts of laundering um, uh, money from state budget uh, will be, uh, I don't know, somehow persecuted by authorities. Um, this is uh, this is my concern, uh, as we believe that we have to tell truth about what is happening um, uh, inside Ukraine and make and, and push authorities in Ukraine to actually deliver reforms. As we think that uh, we will make our defense forces much stronger if we will stop siphoning of 
money of Ukrainian taxpayers at the procurement of uh, uh, in, in defense sector, for example. Now, are there any presidential candidates who are articulating uh, strong anti-corruption um, ideas out there in, in the presidential campaign that, that look like they would be under threat from martial law? Uh, well, actually, uh, literally every candidate now articulates anti-corruption ideas. Uh, it's became unfancy in Ukraine, but it's not uh, clear and um, uh, dubious where, whether all of them uh, are sincere about implementing uh, straightforward steps after they will be selected. And some of the presidential candidates uh, represent uh, old political elites, which are already discredited. For example, Yulia Tymoshenko uh, has uh, the, the, the highest polls in Ukraine. Uh, she also has lots of promises in relation to um, uh, anti-corruption. However, she uh, herself... Uh, was part of a uh, big money laundering scandal back 15 or 20 years ago. And um, she provided bribes to Prime Minister of Ukraine, Lazarenko, who actually was convicted in the United States. And um, uh, he served the jail time in, uh, in jail in California. Uh, so uh, we can't trust this person. Um, we all hope that there will be some sort of political alternative uh, suggested um, for who, who a person who will represent a new political elite and who could unite pro-reform political forces in Ukraine. Uh, but uh, it's uh, it, there is still not such a person um, uh, who uh, announced that he or she will run for the presidency. Well, we'll keep our eye on what's happening in Ukraine. Daria Kalinuk is the executive director of the Anti-Corruption Action Center in Ukraine. We've been talking about the incident yesterday where uh, Russia seized several Ukrainian naval vessels in the Black Sea. The uh, the, the idea that uh, there could be a martial law inside of Ukraine because of this for a month as the president is pursuing in parliament and some of the corruption issues in the presidential campaign. Thanks a lot for joining us, Daria. Thank you. Coming up after the break, I'll talk with film contributor Milo Stalik about the passing of film greats Bernardo Bertolucci and Nicholas Rogue. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Over the weekend, two film greats passed away. We're going to talk about Bernardo Bertolucci and Nicholas Rogue with film contributor Milos Stalik, who joins us from Costa Rica by Skype. Hello, Milos. Hey, Jerome. Good to be here. 
Milos, I wanted to talk first about Bertolucci and uh, his roots go back to all the greats of Italian cinema, uh, Fellini, Visconti, Pasolini, and he really had a relationship with Pasolini. Tell us a little bit about Bernardo Bertolucci and his roots. Well, it's interesting because Bertolucci's father was a very famous Italian poet who actually helped Pasolini. You know, Pasolini was many things. He was a direct film director. He was a writer. He was a poet. Uh, he was a very politically active person. He was an essayist. So he was many, many things. But when Pasolini began writing poetry, Bertolucci's father helped Pasolini get published. And that's kind of how the personal relationship began. And then when Pasolini began thinking about making films, his first film called Acatone, he gave Bernardo Bertolucci the first shot at working with him. And in an interview, which we did on Worldview and ran on Worldview quite a few years ago about very much the same subject, the one thing that I remember from it, which was very prophetic, was Bertolucci said, we were not just making cinema. We didn't know what we were doing, and so we were inventing cinema. And in a way, that's very prescient, because then he became a filmmaker who was very influenced to some degree by Jean-Luc Godard, by the French New Wave. He made films of very, very broad range. And he really became also an intellectual force in cinema. I want to say something about his politics as long as we're here with Pasolini. And he and Pasolini were supporters of the Italian Communist Party. And I heard Bertolucci talk about it in later years. And he said, I lived in kind of a dream of communism. And he felt that communism is now extinct. He was politically outspoken. He was politically outspoken. And his first, very first feature, solo feature as a filmmaker before the revolution, really dealt with this subject in a very, also very prophetic way. It was based very loosely on a novel by Stendhal. It's about a young man who has to decide where to politically align himself, whether to align himself with the revolution or with the status quo. A really, really beautiful film. And this really ran through all of his films, including, of course, examining or re-examining the Italian fascism, you know, in the great film Conformist, which is certainly one of the great films of all time, and films that really spanned, on the other hand, became very global in the end. Films like Last Emperor, also dealing with literally what it means, The Last Emperor of China, the China's transition to communism, or 1900, which really dealt with the evolution of Italian workers, Italian peasantry. So these were like very large-scale subject, large-scale historical subjects that he was not afraid to tackle. Now, let's break that down a little bit. I think most people know Bertolucci from Last Tango in Paris. Absolutely. Uh, and it was still controversial recently when Maria Schneider talked about the, the butter scene not being consensual and uh, kind of a whole new controversy erupted over it. Um, what did that film mean in his career there? Well, I mean, it was an explosion on the world, an explosion that you really can't imagine today any film having that kind of power and that kind of impact, the way that it mobilized people across all kinds of intellectual classes, boundaries, knowledge, I mean, reached very, very far. Of course, Bertolucci did not end up being, as you just said, Maria Schneider's favorite filmmaker. But uh, I noticed Pauline Kael said it was the most important cultural event since Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, which is, which is yeah. going a long way. 
And Pauline Kael had a lot of power at the time as a filmmaker, so she really helped establish. I mean, it was really kind of a shot across the bow. And it's interesting to really go back and look at that film today outside of all of that controversy because it really shows up as a much, much, much more interesting and layered film than it really is. And of course, among those things is the key and central performance of Marlon Brando. What does it mean politically? What does it mean in terms of a dying man, in terms of culture? What does sex mean in society? You know, how are we all connected? All of these kinds of themes which Bertolucci explores outside of the scandal that the film created are seen much more clearly. I wanted to say something about 1900, which was another epic film, and it had Robert De Niro in it, Gerard Depardieu. It was super long, wasn't it? Well, it was a very long version, which ultimately ran on television. It was cut for its release. It was even long for you know theatrical release. I think that the first theatrical cut ran like four hours. Ultimately, it was restored. But you really needed that kind of epic scope to do what Bertolucci wanted to do, which is to give us this idea of a society in transition. And I will really bear re-examining, you can really say that Bertolucci was ahead of its time, because you look at miniseries of films that go across many episodes or many segments in order to portray something much grander and larger. And so in a way, he was really ahead of his time in doing a film like that. It was kind of his war and peace. And a lot of people look at the last 30 minutes of it as a fantastic film. I mean, it's really terrific. Well, I mean, you know, there's that visual sense that Bertolucci imparted to everything. I mean, for that visual sense, I mean, the one film that really stands out, especially, and, and all of his films are very beautiful. I mean, you can look at the cinematography and Conformist. You can look at the key scenes there, like the dance with Stefania Sandrelli and Dominique Sanda, the two women dancing, the portrayal, the way that he used actors often very eminent actors like Jean-Louis Tritignan. And you can look at the visual sense of something like uh, his film that he shot in Morocco, Sheltering Sky. This is beautiful and wonderful, based on a novel, equally great novel, by the American expatriate writer Paul Bowles. And there, in Sheltering Sky, which stars John Malkovich, it's more than Malkovich in the scene. It's the camera by Vittorio Storaro, one of the great cinematographers that really takes the central role. I mean, it's visual imagery as the most active ingredient. You know, when looking over his filmography, it was so interesting. He made such daring choices, like Sheltering Sky was in 1990. Um, La Luna was in 1979. That was with Jill Clayburgh and, and had an incestuous theme. Everything he did controversial. was controversial or would push boundaries. It was not – he didn't make a lot of safe choices in these uh, films. Yeah, I mean it's an interesting thing because he came to cinema as an intellectual. You know, I would say if there was one thing that drove Bertolucci throughout his life, it was psychoanalysis. He believed in psychoanalysis and the power of psychoanalysis very profoundly. He, of course, was analyzed himself many, many, many times. In a way, he used that psychoanalytic approach to tackle subjects which, first of all, are forbidden, which are underneath the surface, like incest in La Luna, and also to look at the individual and his role in society and in history. And so very often, as you say, many of these themes were quite controversial. All right, Milos, I know at one point you ended up standing in for Bernardo Bertolucci at an event. 
Yeah, I spent a lot of time actually studying Bertolucci's writings about his uh, psychoanalysis, which he was very, very uh, verbal and very open about. And Chicago Humanities Festival had invited Bertolucci to be a speaker. And at the last minute, he could not travel to Chicago because by that time, he had had a long-standing problem with his back. He ended up for many years uh, being in a wheelchair and not being mobile. And so at the last minute, he had to cancel because there was no way he could go in the pain that, that he was in. And so I remember doing this at the United Methodist Church, which is a big, huge place. And I remember my first lines there, which was, I am not Bernardo Bertolucci. <laughs> so, <laughs> film contributor Milo Stalik with us, and we're talking about the passing of Bernardo Bertolucci, who died at 77 over the weekend. And coming up in a few minutes, we're going to have Puerto Reconstruction, our final installment of Puerto Reconstruction, where we talk about responsible ways to travel to Puerto Rico in the future. Also passing away this weekend was Nicholas Rogue, the British film great, who people may not be as familiar with as some of the Bertolucci titles, but he did uh, Don't Look Now with Donald Sutherland and uh, Julie Christie. He also did Walkabout and The Man Who Fell to Earth with David Bowie. I was surprised going back and looking at his camera work and cinematography. He really had a strong background uh, in that before he became a director. I was surprised at all his credits, Milos. Well, he never went to film school. You know, he came up through the ranks, which was still possible at the time, especially in British cinema, as many other filmmakers like Ken Russell, for example, did, working his way up. For Rogue, it meant, you know, being a runner, being around the studio, eventually working his way up to being a cameraman uh, on many, many good films, including, for example, Petulia uh, by Richard Lester. And then eventually he became a filmmaker. And again, I think what's interesting and kind of unites them and brings them together with Bertolucci is both were very visually driven filmmakers. For Rogue, of course, it was that he approached it as a cameraman himself. So if you look at films which were Rogue's films, the ones which were transformational really came about pretty much early in his career. He didn't end up working very much except for television in the last decades of his life and living, of course, in L.A., as many expat filmmakers did. But films like Walkabout, you know, which became a, a huge international cut hit, unusual subject, right? A young man in Australia played by David Galpilil who goes on a walkabout and a young girl and her younger even brother being lost out in the outback and then being saved by this young Aboriginal man who is on his right of passage, which he breaks. I mean, visually stunning, something that really reached deep into the minds and hearts of such a generation. It was really one of those films that define a generation more than anything else. And you could say the same thing in terms of his reaching out for unusual subjects and unusual actors, films like In Performance, which is an acting role from Mick Jagger, film very much of the, the 60s and early 70s, you know, or Bad Timing and Central Obsession, a film which became also a cult, Man Who Fell to Earth, casting David Bowie as this being from another planet, and a film which has the best sex scene ever filmed, <laughs> which is Don't Look Now. Um, yeah, why is that? What, what's that? what happened there? You know, it's very hard to figure this scene out, how it's structured. It's a sex scene between uh, Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. 
for years they were asked about this and of course kept denying, kept saying that this was not real sex, that this was all staged. But what makes it so effective is that he cross-cuts the act of love with their dressing afterwards. And that creates a certain kind of tension. It perhaps looks like a, or seems like a cheap trick, but it's very, very effective. And I, I would really wager a lot with anyone to find a sex scene that works better than this one. It was interesting that he cast so many rockers in his films. Uh, you mentioned David Bowie and previously Mick Jagger, but he also had Art Garfunkel in a film, Bad Timing, with Teresa Russell, and uh, that was about an obsessive relationship, too. Right, and Teresa Russell became Nick Rogue's wife, I think second wife. They were married for quite a long time, eventually divorced. But I think this comes from his growing up in you know the London and the England of the late 1960s, early 70s, where music was such an important part of the scene. You know, we can really look at a film like Blow Up by Antonioni to give us a sense of what that was like. That's where he came from. And those were the kinds of characters and actors that he was looking for. Don't Look Now, you know, shot in Venice, probably one of the most beautiful ways to represent a setting. I mean, all these canals. It's a mystery thriller. Uh, you know, at the very based on a novel by Daphne du Maurier, at the very beginning of the film, a child of a couple, the Donald Sutherland Julie Christ, is missing, and there's a murderer in a red raincoat, represented in a red raincoat, who is thought to be the killer. And so... In this film, I remember you see just flashes of red, sometimes in a canal, on the side of a building, around, you know, around a corner. It's a film on which you are literally at the edge of your seat the whole time. I wonder if um, one of the things that connects him to Bertolucci is he didn't make a lot of safe choices in his later films. He, you know, just did interesting things, it sounds like, uh, the things he was doing. And he did a three-film partnership with uh, Jeremy Thomas, and one of them was Insignificance, which had Marilyn Monroe meeting Albert Einstein and uh, Joe DiMaggio and and Senator McCarthy there. It was kind of a wild thing. Um, He did what he wanted. Well, if you look at films like Performance, you know, I mean, they're quite experimental at, at their basis. I mean, even Man Who Fell to Earth, I mean, is a, you know, kind of a crazy idea. He was a filmmaker who really tried to go out and reach pretty far, just like Bertolucci tried to reach far, have a far reach. And that's kind of, in a way, what unites them. You don't see as many of, of filmmakers being able to do that. This, in some ways, cost Rogue a lot because, in terms of his career, he then had trouble finding money to make films, so he ended up working for television, I mean, doing all of these TV movies. Many of the films were not necessarily financially successful at the time, like performance didn't really make that much money. It really just came back and really came back as a cult film. Bad Timing was a film that was legendary, but only legendary because nobody had really seen it and it was not available, it was not in distribution. So in a way, this cult grew up around Rogue on the way back. So people rediscovered his films or discovered the film, his films for the first time years later after the time when they were made. i got to admit, our conversation makes me want to poke around and, and see a couple of Nicholas Rogue, dig up a couple of Nicholas Rogues. It's better time spent than just about anything. Film contributor Milos Stalik, thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the passing of Nicholas Rogue, the British filmmaker, and Bernardo Bertolucci, the Italian filmmaker. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jerome. 
Coming up after the break, we'll have the final installment of our series, Puerto Reconstruction, and we'll look forward and talk about visiting Puerto Rico and doing some good. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for the final installment of our series, Puerto Reconstruction. We've been doing it regularly on Monday through hurricane season, and hurricane season ends at the end of November, and it's great that Puerto Rico made it through without another storm. We thought we would conclude the series with a look forward to something that you could do to help Puerto Rico. Visit and help. You can get out of this cold, snowy climate and do some good at the same time. And we're going to be joined by a couple of people. First, let's talk with Manolo Lopez. He is the founder of the Cosa Nuestra Relief Fund and is a chef and entrepreneur. Thanks very much for joining us, Manolo. Thank you for having me today. Tell us a little about yourself. Uh, you're, you're someone who lives divides time between New York and California and Puerto Rico. Um, what, what were you doing when the hurricane hit, and how did you start up this fund? Yeah, so for the past uh, five years, I was in New York where I created Puerto Rican pop-ups, and we had the opportunity to make mofongo, which is Puerto Rican staple dish, and do pop-ups in Japan, Chile, Mexico, and show the world a little bit more about what Puerto Rican food is really about. Uh, after the hurricane, I was one of the first people to be let in along with my crew from New York, and we established food programs around the island in partnership with the St. George Children's Hospital to bring warm food and medical attention to all the areas that were still not getting help. After a few months uh, helping in the island, we realized that the restaurants were trying to reopen, but it was very hard for them to, to actually maintain their doors open to the crowds. Uh, so... We shifted our focus and started raising funds uh, privately to actually pay these restaurants to create all these meals that we were bringing free of charge. So for the past year, that's what we've been doing, doing dinners around the world, talking about Puerto Rico and figuring out ways to empower local businesses because they drive our economy. Um, I saw some statistics about how many restaurants just, you know, got closed uh, by the hurricane and it was a lot. Yeah, we have to understand that Puerto Rico was in a depression, in a financial depression before the hurricane. It was in a $72 billion debt. Prior to the hurricane, there was 4,500 restaurants open. After the hurricane, only 2,500 managed to reopen at a 60% capacity. And that amounted for almost 30,000 direct jobs and almost 15 indirect jobs. So our focus had to be in the long-term reconstruction of Puerto Rico and figuring out ways to actually help the local businesses. So when we raised these funds, we actually wanted to empower these local restaurants from different parts of the island, not just San Juan, to be able to cut down on the logistics, delivering food so food can actually be taken there at the right temperature. We have to also understand that it was an island where hospitals weren't working, so we were very mindful of it. Another component that we were trying to work with all these local restaurants is to change the mindset from using foam and plastic containers to biodegradable or compostable uh, plates. And it's very important that we keep this in mind because the trash was not being picked up. Now we shift our focus to talking around the world to empower people to come to Puerto Rico. And I want to take this time to let all of everybody who's listening to us know that 
Puerto Rico is part of the U.S. You don't need a passport to go there. Uh, from many parts of, of the U.S., if you're in the East Coast, it's a four-hour flight. And if you're in the West Coast, it's as much as a seven-hour flight. And in the wintertime, it's 90 degrees. Most of the people speak English there. And it's open for business. And the best way that you can contribute to Puerto Rico is actually traveling there taking your family and making sure that you support all these amazing local businesses that are striving after the hurricane and that at this moment need your support, right? We're U.S. citizens and we're trying to restructure and figure out ways where we can continue giving that customer service that everybody knows Puerto Rico for. Now, if you wanted, if people wanted to go and get out of San Juan and help some of the other areas that were hard hit by the hurricane and help their restaurants and everything, where would you recommend that they go? Well, look, I think always doing the right research prior is key. And uh, I will recommend uh, a local guide called Local, which translates to local. And in this book, you can find all the amazing restaurants that have reopened, all the galleries, all the all the bars, all the coffee shops that are reopening, and it's great. So, but... From my perspective, I was born and raised in the west side of the island. So in Aguadilla, you have amazing places. You have amazing beaches like uh, Crash Boat. You have amazing beaches like Survivor Beach and Hobos, all of which have their restaurants on the beach and small hotels ran by locals. And it's important to just be in San Yeah, you can come into San Juan, but make sure that you rent a car Everything's a, a two and a half hour proximity around the island. You have Fajardo all the way to the east where you have the bioluminescent bay. All the way south in Ponce, which is another of the main towns, you have a beautiful uh, coastal town with, with amazing seafood. And all the way to the middle of the island where you have just like the amazing rainforest. So you can really change the terrain and see how diverse the island is. So I would luckily just... I can give you guys a list as well that you can post on your social media so more people can know. But, you know, there's a lot of websites that give you great recommendations. Uh, PuertoRicoEats.com is one of them that I always recommend. And it just tells you where to eat all around the island, what places to visit, how to impact them. And it's just important to just reach out to the local people through social media. Everybody's very nice. Everybody speaks English and they're, they're, they're anxious and happy to just serve you. We're talking about ways that you can help Puerto Rico and visit and get out of the snowy climate at the same time. And Manolo, Manolo Lopez is the founder of the Cosa Nuestra Relief Fund. And also joining us on the line is Amanda Colazo, and she's executive director of the Amigos de los Animales. And they are uh, friends of animals, and they, they help with some of the dog situation in Puerto Rico. Hello, Amanda. Hi, hello. How are you? Good. Um, can you tell us a little about uh, what's happening with Puerto Rico's dogs? I understand there's lots of um, that there's lots of strays, and, and this is something that's been ongoing. Yeah, this has been ongoing since since I've I've lived here since I was four, and I would just see stray dogs and cats all the time. It's it wasn't even an issue. It wasn't even something where you would think about it when I was a child. Now there's a little bit more um, conscientiousness among the community. They see a stray dog, and while they they may not, the person that sees it may not take the time to, to help it. They'll take a picture and post it on social media. Social media has helped a lot in that regard. 
Yeah, I wanted to ask Amanda if you're still there. That um, what? Tell us about your organization. I mean, people go there from all over the world, and they uh, try to try to help. And uh, you've got uh, the Friends of Animals, and this is an organization that's uh, trying to help some of the dogs in Puerto Rico. Um, tell us about Friends of Animals. Um, yeah, Friends of Animals. It's a it's a nonprofit organization. We're a five hundred one c three. And we were incorporated in 2005. Um, since 2007, we've had a dog shelter located in Piñones, which is a beach community. And it's a place where many dogs um, and cats are abandoned by their previous owners. And so um, we really help the community by providing the service of taking in dogs that we see on the streets, on the beaches. And most of them are, are, nice, are nice dogs. They're, you know, they were once pets. So, um, and people come and help from all over the world and stay at the the shelter there. Yes. Yeah. So recently, had some people. We're getting a little more uh, break up, and maybe we'll we'll chat with Manolo Lopez a little bit more uh, from the Costa Nuestra Relief Fund. Have you heard of uh, uh, Friends of Animals, uh, Manolo? Yes. The situation in Puerto Rico with the stray dogs and cats is very dear. Uh, and I think uh, it's important that these organizations uh, are actively helping all around the island. And, you know, these animals, like she just said, were pets at one time and, you know, uh, were abandoned. And, you know, we need to be more conscious about the animals. And I, too, know that people have been more conscious in pre- previous years on, you know, how uh, how to give this attention to, to, to this issue in the island as well. Um, Amanda, tell us about some of the people who have uh, come to help you out, uh, people from all over the world. Yes, um, we we had some people come in from England, and that was a very cool experience. Um, They started, they gave us like their own perspective of how things are there. And, um, and they were also very helpful. They, they worked for like four days straight. We currently have like a, a, shelter construction going on and they were very helpful there and also helpful in terms of like marketing. They had different ideas of marketing um, that a different perspective from the U S. So that was very cool. Um, what, what are your goals for the organization in the future? Do you, do you think um, more people will come and, and help you out? And do you have ideas about what to do with the dogs? Cause I understand the dogs used to bring some dogs to the, to the rest of the United States, and take them out of Puerto Rico. Uh, how does that work? Yeah, we um, we communicate, and we have what are called sister shelters in the United States, and um, we we have like deals with them that we send we send them our dogs. Um, they adopt them to people there, and uh, they'll pay for the transport. We'll pay for the for getting the dog healthy, making sure that it gets. Like when it's on the plane, it's an adoptable dog. And so we'll send maybe about, I think this year we sent 120 dogs to the United States, mostly to the Northeast. Wow. Um, we haven't, we've never sent to Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> so you need a partner organization here. We need a partner organization in Chicago. That would be great. Um, but mostly it's to New Jersey. We've sent to New York, New Hampshire, New England mostly. Well, that sounds great, and I'm glad you're helping uh, the dogs down there. And uh, if people want more information about your organization, where do they go? 
on Instagram, we're on Facebook, and our website is amigosdelosanimalespr.org. All right, so uh, that's Amigos de los Animals, and they are in Puerto Rico. You can get them on all the social media and on the web as well. Thanks very much for joining us, Amanda Colazzo, uh, the executive director of Amigos de los Animales. Thank you. Sorry for the connection. <laughs> and thanks also to Manolo Lopez, the founder of the Cosa Nuestra Relief Fund, for talking to us about your projects. Thanks a lot for joining us, Manolo, as well. Thank you, guys. And I want to thank everybody who has helped with the Puerto Reconstruction series over the last uh, months that we've been doing this. This is the final installment. We said we'd do it through hurricane season. Hurricane season ends at the end of November, and it's been a great experience to do it. I've learned a lot about Puerto Rico. I hope you have, too. And I really want to thank the Puerto Rican Agenda and Cristina Passione uh, Zayas and also Omar Torres Courtright at Segundo Ruiz Belvis Cultural Center. They've both been a uh, huge asset to us on this series and are a huge asset to our community here. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll have a chat with uh, Stephen Walt from Harvard University. We'll talk about his new book on what's gone wrong with uh, the foreign policy elite in the United States. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco and thanks to Mike Gilmore as well. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.